Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. Dr. Legere, I just want to thank you again for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles to speak about um, your two articles that you wrote last year, uh, you know, virus versus a visitor, as well as the implementing the roadmap. So if I, if we can just um, tell us a little bit about yourself so our listeners um, know a little bit more. First, I want to thank you very much for the opportunity to meet with me today. Um, it's actually been a great week. This is my first podcast ever, so thank you. Um, but I was also mentioned in Andre Picard's new book uh, called Neglected No More about improving Canada's um, elders care. And uh, that's really re-energized me. And so the timing of this is just perfect. So thank you. You're welcome. Um, I'm uh, the medical director and attending physician for the John Noble Home. Uh, That's a 156 bed municipal facility in Brantford, Ontario. Um, I trained as a family doctor, but I uh, have special training and uh, a competency certificate in palliative care as well. And for that work, I see patients through the Stedman Hospice outreach team in Brantford. And we do visits in homes, we have a hospice, and we also have a consulting service at the Brantford General Hospital in an eight bed unit there as well. Um, I am an assistant clinical prof with the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster, um, and I teach residents both in palliative care and care of the elderly. Uh, I bring them right into the nursing home, and uh, we do some great work there. Um, For the last uh, year and a half, I've been on the board for the Ontario Long-Term Care Clinicians, which is the OLTCC. Um, And I'm also on the medical director course faculty, and I've just recently written two chapters on leadership and working in teams. Uh, which are keeping kind of with my interest in physician leadership and healthcare systems change. Um, But I I have to say that my life's joy is found uh, living in Dundas with my really amazing husband, Steve, who is completely supportive of what I do. And my dog, Odette, who is a Barbet, and that's a French water dog. And uh, I have three 30-year-old adult children that I see when I can. Um, I have a robust wellness personal practice. I exercise. I have a mindfulness and meditation practice. I study piano and I'm now in grade seven and I'm a private pilot and I fly my own Cessna 182 airplane and uh, my goal is to fly around Canada as much as I can. It's really a beautiful country from the air. So thank you. No, thank you. That's really great. So we'll start and uh, this these sets of first set of questions will come from the article that you wrote, Virus versus Visitor, Why Long-Term Care Needs a Palliative Approach. So the first question is, in that particular article, you compare current language commonly used to describe long-term care, such as facilities, beds, and dollars, versus speaking words used in a palliative care approach like people, time, quality of life. So what are you saying is not only that uh, our actions do we need to change, but our words in describing long-term care, is that correct? Yeah, Um, you know, I've I've reflected a lot on the last year. Um, It's it's been the most um, interesting and and tiring year of my career. Um, I've been a doctor for over 25 years now. Um, And I really believe that words and language matters. And it matters very much when we're talking about healthcare. So one year ago, uh, I would tell you that most Canadians did not know the difference between a retirement home or a nursing home or a long-term care home. And they really didn't understand what a congregate care setting is. Um, But you can't, you know, everybody reads and social media and TV and interviews. I think 
people are getting a much clearer understanding of what those terms are today. Um, and most understand that, you know, in long-term care, we have had many, many problems on earth because of COVID. Um, but those problems existed before COVID. And I think those working in the system were really well aware that we need more facilities, we need more beds, we need more dollars. So I'm just gonna put that out there. We need all those things. But those are not the things that are gonna fix the problems in long-term care, and they're not gonna provide better care for our residents. So what do we need? Well, we need um, a more dignified care in long-term care. These are vulnerable residents, and we need to have more people with better, more appropriate training, and we need to have meaningful interactions with our residents every day. You know, um, other people talking in your palliative care series have talked about what the length of stay is in nursing homes, and it is less than two years in, throughout most of Canada, and it is less than 18 months in Ontario. So that care, we need to focus it on quality of life, and it, I, I'm going to tell you it just needs to be through a palliative care approach. So I'll get you then to just to explain why the it should be a palliative care approach in long-term care and how much better off we would be if we had this place had this in place prior to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So for me, a palliative care approach, um, especially in long-term care, is an approach that focuses on optimizing quality of life and it provides relief from symptoms. That's a really simple definition. Um, but, you know, no matter where we deliver palliative care, it needs to focus on quality of life. So it doesn't matter in what work setting I am, all my work is palliative care. So if I give you some examples, um, you know, one day I do home visits per week and I have a 50 year old woman. She has stage four breast cancer and she has debilitating pain from her bone metastases. But what she wants and what's important to her is to attend her daughter's wedding without too much pain that day and not too many side effects from that medication. Another day I'm doing consultations at the hospital and I have to admit somebody either to the hospital or the hospice. We admit people from both, um, even at the hospital. And this you know, 76 year old man just had a devastating stroke. Uh, he's refusing um, a feeding tube and because he tells everybody that's not my idea of quality of life. And his family is devastated. They're my age. And they're questioning, you know, how am I going to alleviate all this suffering? And how am I going to take care of dad? And then at the John Noble home, 103-year-old woman, she looks just like my grandmother. My, I have a grandmother who just uh, died about six years ago at that age. And but her goal is stop all my pills and let my family visit. And we're in the middle of an outbreak. So, you know, really different examples that kind of bring home what we do. I started working in long-term care about 13 years ago. Um, I'd been a hospitalist for about that many years before. And at that time, you know, there were so many people who had a long life ahead of them. Um, it was hard to tell the difference between nursing home and retirement home that many years ago. And, you know, there used to be enough beds in long-term care to admit seniors. They couldn't afford retirement homes. They needed minimal assistance and there were beds. But for at least the last eight years, uh, no one is being admitted to long-term care who doesn't have significant care needs. Um, we have this fast-growing population of seniors. We have inadequate home care to keep them in their homes. Um, and even when we do, sometimes there's not enough family. And families are aging to take care of these you know, very vulnerable people. So there's these long wait lists and people have to get into long-term care and they're more frail and that's really irreversible. And that's why the length of stay is so short. 
So I'm going to say that, you know, in the time I've been working in these two areas, especially in the last year, a palliative care approach should start before admission to long-term care. Goals of care conversation, advanced care planning, they should have all been documented and done before admission to long-term care. When they're admitted, we can revisit that. You know, the physician, the nurse practitioner can revisit, we can update prognosis, we can alert residents and families to what our concerns are for their longevity. We can still manage all the disease symptoms. We can still offer restorative care. Some people do actually flourish after having been at home with not enough services. But symptom management, supportive emotional and spiritual care, we should have that from day one. So consider you know, a resident-centered model. That's what we do in long-term care, right? Everything is centered on the resident. So family, friends, volunteers, all the professionals in long-term care, we all need to work together to meet that individual resident's goals of care, not the system's goals of care, the resident's goals of care. So when the end of life does come, and it always does, right? It does. And for most people, it's their last home when they're admitted. It should be provided in a culturally sensitive manner. We live in a very yes. multicultural society. We need to reduce the suffering that comes with anticipated loss and grief. That's all the palliative care approach. Yes, no, thank you so much for that. And I guess the next one is, you know, can you explain to our audience why you believe it is important to focus on providing quality of life versus following a checklist of daily tasks? Mm -hmm. I'm gonna go back to another little life snippet here. You know, I work in long-term care, right? You know, I do palliative. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm always asking people what their retirement plans are. Um, so some like me, I'm not retiring. You know, I have a grandmother that lived to her hundreds. I have a lot of longevity in my family. Um, I like my job, I'm not retiring. But most people are going to say, you know, I'm going to move to Florida and I'm going to golf every day. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to spend time with my grandkids and my family. But no, nobody ever says, I'm going to move into a long-term care facility. People are going to tell me what day I get a bath, what time I have to get up, when I'm going to bed or eat my meals. Nobody believes themselves that they're going to be the one who develops a life-limiting or a life-devastating disease which is always the reason that someone needs admission to long-term care. You know, dementia takes an eraser to your memories and, and stroke takes away your independence functions. Um, it's, it's, it's sad to watch, but given good quality of life care and long-term care, we can make a difference. You know, we all understand we need to feed people three meals a day, we need to give them snacks and drinks, we need to bathe, we need to dress them. But people would be shocked, absolutely shocked, at how much time it takes every single day, every single thing, every single resident, every single shift, every day, we're ticking off boxes, we're doing a checklist of care. And because there's a shortage of just about every long-term care health provider, and there has been even before COVID, more time is spent ticking off the boxes than actually spent with the resident. So, you know, residents and family members, they don't appreciate the time that we spend on charting and ticking boxes. Everybody who's ever been in any healthcare facility knows you walk by and they're sitting at the nurse's desk and what are they doing, right? Hospital, nursing home. They understand a sit down conversation. They understand a trip out to the garden. They understand holding a hand, giving a hug. They appreciate caregivers who actually know the personal stories and take the time to ask. What can I do for you right now to make you more comfortable? What can I do to bring you a little joy today? 
Can I bring you your iPod with your favorite music on it? Can I get your son on the phone for you? Can I make you toast and peanut butter instead of this tuna sandwich? You know, these are small things and big things that can really improve quality of life. No, thank you for that. No, that's very, very true. And going into the next question, you know, one can say that the prolonged isolation is a silent killer. And this has been a truth even before the pandemic. Please explain why it is important for the resident to be able to maintain social connections and create connections with the staff. Mm -hmm. um, if we define loneliness as the absence of meaningful interaction, you know, all adults have felt loneliness at some time in their life. And sometimes yes. that happens in a room full of people. Exactly. So my undergrad degree was uh, psychology and actually women's studies and chartered accounting, which is really funny. <laughs> interesting path to medicine, but I uh, actually did child psychology. And I read so many studies, you know, orphan studies where they never developed attachments because they were left in a crib as a child or toddler, even as adults, like they just had never had those connections. Humans need inter to interact with other humans. That's what we need as a basic um, need in our life. You know, we need different types of interactions, right? Sometimes we need, um, you know, care needs to provide, needs to be provided in a dignified manner. Um, but we still need to be cleaned up if we're incontinent. And we sometimes we just need someone to give us the remote, really. Um, but we also really need a lot of joyful interactions. So when somebody plays your favorite song on the piano and you can sing along, there's a little joy in that. Um, but, you know, when we could get older and, and in our last weeks and our months and our years, and, and I would tell you all my nursing home residents, um, we need somebody who's just genuinely compassionate to interact with us. Um, you know, lots of people, they're the last person in their family to be alive. Their spouse is gone. They never had any children, maybe. Um, and other family don't come visit for whatever reason. And, you know, having dementia takes away your memories and that's isolating. Not being able to speak after a stroke, that's isolating. All these things existed in long-term care before the pandemic. Um, and you might be surprised, you know, not all long-term care facilities have recreation therapy. Did you know that? No. In no, 20, no. Yeah, in 2018, I found this study when I was doing research about a year ago. In 2018, three years ago, only 25% of long-term care facilities had access to recreation programs that wow. use what I would say leisure-based interventions. So whether or not they're uh, doing Tai Chi or bringing reading and music to residents, only 25%. Um, and studies really clearly show that um, recreation therapy programs improve function and they improve mobility. And, um, you know, all we need to do is give them access. So if we can show that that um, intervention helps, um, then we can actually believe that, that uh, also having recreational therapy can help decrease the effects of isolation and loneliness. So it's recreation therapists and all those um, stories that you've read where they've been doing things well in the pandemic, you know, it's rec therapists who have primarily connected residents to families through virtual visits. Because the yes. nurses don't really have time to do that. You know, they may be doing virtual visits with the physician around medical issues, but it's those rec therapists because volunteers haven't been allowed to come in. Yeah. So we were really lucky at John Noble Home. We already had a rec therapy department and it was pretty robust. But what we um, did is we have six units at John Noble 
And each one, we made sure they had a dedicated recreation therapy staff um, to make sure that um, infection control was also going on. And I reviewed our stats about two weeks ago because I was, you know, have we had more people die in the pandemic? Yes. Because we've not had any outbreaks at, um, in, in residence at John Noble Home. And, and everybody senses that people have been dying from isolation and loneliness. And you know, there's absolutely no increase in the number of deaths last year than in the two years before. Okay. Exactly the same numbers. And I have to say that recreation therapy is a big part of that. It's not the only part of that. I'm fortunate. I work in a really good home, newer facility um, or a renovated facility. Um, you know, and we've had lots of outbreaks because of staff testing positive though. So I have seen the effects of isolation. The residents who are able to express themselves, they know me by name when I walk in, um, you know, they tell me how tired they are of the isolation and they miss, even though we're letting people back in the home, it's not the same as it was. Friends aren't coming in, you know, one or two designated family members are. And um, so, you know, even if they're not dying from loneliness, they are really feeling sad or mad or frustrated about what this last year has been. Um, and I'm really hoping that now that, you know, uh, residents have largely been vaccinated in Ontario, um, that we're going to revisit the restrictions in long-term care, even if we have those one-off outbreaks um, in staff. We need to revisit that because um, I think everybody's, okay, we've done it, it's a year. Um, but, you know, we hear rumors that this, that the restrictions might last for another year from the ministry. And I just don't think that residents and staff can survive that. You know, uh, there's, there's yeah. no compassion there in that decision. Um, we need to see what's safe. We can mitigate those risks and move on. You know, we need to get rec recreation back in the homes. Definitely. I, I couldn't agree more. And That's okay. so... Prior to the pandemic, nurses and personal support workers had limited hours, which forced workers to jump from one home to the next. And this created job instability for the workers and confusion for the residents. Then during the pandemic, one good outcome was by limiting the work to a single home to help minimize the spread of the coronavirus. The, fire, uh, the residents began seeing more consistent staff on a daily basis. And then I guess this is you know, what this revealed in terms of the connections which is what you were speaking to, that the staff had been able to make with the residents. And, and why was this so very important during this time? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I wish I had a study because I was able to bring out a study for rec therapists, but, you know, and I trained at McMaster and we're always wanting the evidence there. Um, so I'm not, you know, there's, there's no studies I can refer to. I don't think we're far enough in to be able to take a look at where's that proof. But, you know, I've been working in long-term care long enough and I understand the staffing model very well. So I think what I'm going to say is um, I've really appreciated getting to know the PSWs and nurses who chose to work at our facility um, in the last year rather than work somewhere else. Um, imagine, you know, you have dementia, you um, don't recognize voices and faces the way you did. Um, you know, if you're lucky when you're admitted, you make some connections that it's gonna see you through your, your last years. And, and that's gonna be voice, right? Probably more than face. Um, so, you know, human interaction. So that's, that's what we need. So um, consistent, compassionate interaction, we all crave that. Um, that's gonna to lead to better quality of care, um, but it's not the whole story. Um, I think the problem with COVID is that 
uh, even with more consistent staffing, you know, they were wearing masks and shields and that interferes with communication. So, you know, it's been part of my practice for a long time um, to ask PSWs how they think the residents are doing when I'm doing my rounds. They are with them more than any other caregiver in long-term care. Nurses are giving medications, you know, they do get to know them, especially in acute changes in their condition, but it's the PSWs who are there every day and, and recognizing what's happening in the changes. And I used to hear all the time, oh, I don't really know Mrs. X very well, you know, or, you know, I don't work here or I'm just casual. I hardly ever hear that anymore. So that is an improvement in care. Um, I think the rest of it around the interaction and the masks and how we're going to um, carry forward that really um, is um, something that, that there are lots of doctors and lots of healthcare professionals that are talking about the staffing models right now. I, I really hope we're gonna see some lasting changes there. Yeah, that would be really, really, really good. And I know that you probably, you, you've touched on this in some of the answers before, but I just wanted to ask in terms of the staff need time to generally check in with residents and their families, to ensure that physical needs are being addressed while the core values of the whole person are supported. Why is this so important that the whole medical and supportive team, including administrative staff and volunteers need to understand the importance of quality of life and delivering it with a palliative approach to care? Mm -hmm. um, so this ties in with your, your last yeah. question really well. And, you know, I, I'm gonna agree, you know, um, you've interviewed my colleague, uh, Dr. Emmett Area. And he really, we need to fix the long-term care staff hiring model. Um, you know, we need adequately paid staff who are provided good benefits and we need our team to have proper education though. Um, you know, everyone learns the basics of their profession in their schools, right? Not a problem. But in long-term care, staff really need to understand what the palliative care approach is to care and how to provide it. And they need to know how to deliver that care to this population of seniors. Um, that means education and compassionate communication. That means additional instruction and in non-pharmacological interventions for people with dementia or other behavioral problems. And that education should be mandatory and it should be paid for by the government as part of our long-term care budget. So my big hope for the future of long-term care is that if we can change the culture and the beliefs of those who work there, um, those who live there and those who visit there, we will have a different long-term care system. You know, we live in a society that has medicalized life and death. We're really focused on trying to fix things and fix people. And there are some things that just can't be fixed without actually making the outcome worse. You know, a 95 year old resident doesn't need to be fixed. They've lived a long life and hopefully they lived a good long life, right? You know, we might need to fix their fractured hip so they have less pain. That's still palliative care approach, but we're not gonna fix the problem of falling because of the frailty or the dementia that they had. We can't yes. fix that. So, you know, that resident deserves to live comfortably in their home. And now long-term care is their home. We have a duty in our society and in long-term care to support that aging with dignity and not do too much. So a palliative care approach, I'm going to say it again, it doesn't mean we don't treat. It just means treat differently. You know, I'll never forget the resident who told me she wasn't eating well because she felt full from all the pills she was getting in applesauce. 
She had a small appetite. She was elderly and she was getting no joy from her applesauce. She hated it every day. They came at her two and three times a day. You know, I stopped yeah. most medications and her appetite improved. Yes. That's better quality of life. You know, seniors don't want aggressive medical therapies. It's, it's, it's us, our age and, and, our, and yeah. my kids' age who are uncomfortable with just having an approach to life that says, I'm just going to get a little joy every day. All the pills I've yes. been taking since I was 50, I don't need that anymore. They've done their job. I'm 90. Yeah. You know, exactly. most, most seniors don't want to go to the hospital either. And most actually, you know, they just want to die in their bed at home in their own bed. Yes. Now I work in palliative care. Most people don't get that wish of just dying in their sleep, but we can make that so much more comfortable for everybody. So everyone in long-term care from administration to nursing to PSWs and even physicians, I'm going to tell you, we need to understand that palliative care improves quality of life. And everyone in long-term care needs training in the palliative care approach. And this is not knowledge that we acquire through living. We need to teach people this approach. You know, though, and again, you know, we have a duty to the residents and their families to help them voice their care goals. In a perfect world, advanced care planning, goals of care, I'm going to come back to that point. It's determined before admission. But at two in the morning, people get scared when there's something acute that happens. And if staff are well-trained and able to say those words without judgment, you know, and with compassion and confidence, comfort care will never become part of what we can offer people. It'll always be sent to hospital. We need exactly. To I couldn't agree with you more. I, I hope that this conversation that we're having helps in terms of changing that thought process towards palliative care. And so people really start thinking and really start um, looking at it um, with different with a different lens. Mm -hmm. So we'll now go into your next article that you wrote last year as well. Um, it's called the Implementing the Roadmap, Why Long-Term Care Needs a Palliative Approach. And the question that I'm going to, um, to indicate is that you indicated the Government of Canada needs or should work collaboratively on a national framework. And you provided four essential learnings. And the first one being the social distancing in, in facility redevelopment, uh, finding focus on outcomes and stabilizing staff, personal protective equipment, and quality of life. Firstly, how do you incorporate these four essential pillars into the national framework standard in the Canada Health Act? Mm -hmm. um, what a difference a year makes. Um, when I wrote that piece almost a year ago, uh, the national and provincial government seemed to actually be coordinating efforts and getting along. Yes. Um, but uh, things have changed. And, you know, I'm not a legislative lawyer. This is not my area of expertise, although I, I believe in what I wrote. Um, so I don't actually know if the Canada Health Act is um, able to affect change in these areas or if that's the right thing to do a year later. Um, but I do believe we need a national framework on long-term care separate from all the frameworks that already exist for seniors care, or at least uh, to give it its own um, place in those frameworks. Um, Dr. Um, Samir Sinha, who is the director of geriatrics at Sinai Health, um, he was the author of the National Institute on Aging Report on Long-Term Care. It actually came out you know, September 2019, before all this happened, um, pre-COVID. 
And it was a white paper that defined long-term care as care and support for those who require assistance for their ADLs, which is activities of daily living, but it wasn't location specific and it actually include long-term care supports in the home. Well, that's not the long-term care I work in. Um, I work in a facility and that has become home to those vulnerable seniors when the home supports have been lacking or have failed. And I don't think that even with dramatic improvements in home care, we're always going to need long-term care facilities. So the national framework I envision uh, keeps long-term care residents safe in a facility. So I believe that national standards, national framework, all of that would be welcomed by long-term care users and caregivers, um, but it needs to recognize regional and local issues as well. And you know, we live in this very big, different country. Long-term care facility that provides care to our indigenous people in Northern Saskatchewan is not gonna look the same thing as providing care to a multicultural population in downtown Toronto. They're gonna to be different. They're gonna have different needs. So there is lots of chatter out there about long-term care framework being developed by the federal government. Um, I've seen yes. some early emails coming through. Um, I've recently heard that there's some movement at the Senate to have a committee that looks at long-term care reforms. Um, but I don't have anything definitive that I can confidently share today. Um, I think, you know, four to six months from now, we can have this conversation again. And I'll sure. be able to say, you know, this is really where I think you, um, uh, we should be going. Uh, yes. There's certainly, I, I can speak to those four pillars if you'd like me to as well. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, just, that's going into the next question. So absolutely. So the first one being the social distancing and facility re redevelopment, you know, does this mean that, you know, we have to have smaller facilities? Um, maybe. You know, um, as for social distancing and long-term care, I think we've known for decades that having more than two people share a long-term care room is problematic for infection control. Um, it's, it's no surprise that the older facilities have experienced more COVID-19 infections and deaths than the newer ones. Um, I work in a big facility, you know, 156 beds is pretty big, um, but it's six separate units. Uh, three of them are a completely new building um, in the last five years. Um, and the other three have been renovated to provide more rooms. So when this all started, we only had a handful of rooms that had inadequate spacing between the beds. And so we closed them. Um, you know, one of the things I find difficult about long-term care um, as an aging adult, you know, 58 years old, yeah. um, it's the loss of autonomy that residents experience when they're yes. Yeah. We take an adult who's lived independently, making their own decisions about everything, and then we expect them to be happy sharing a bedroom and a washroom with a stranger. Yeah. Right? So, you know, we aspire to make long-term care a home, but for many, it, it's never that. So some people never get over that loss of privacy and feel it's undignified. So others will thrive, the new roommate, they feel less lonely, they're, you know, they're, they're very social people. But I think going forward, when we're developing long-term care, we need to offer private and semi-private rooms. We, we never should go back to three and four rooms, of people in a room ever again. They're unsafe and, and for all the reasons I just said, they're undignified. Um, you know, and then there's other things you mentioned. So PPE, two outbreaks of coronavirus, SARS-1, which I worked was working at a hospital in Oakville as a hospitalist back then in COVID this time. If we don't have enough proof now that we always have to have enough PPE available, I don't know what else we need to do. Yes. So legislation can ensure those two first points. 
they Perfect. can ensure how we're going to build and how we're going to house people in long-term care. And we can legislate PPE. Um, we can legislate well-trained uh, well and stable staff members. Yes. We can legislate that. Um, we can legislate dedicated hours for care. We can legislate that too. Um, Outcome-based care, yeah. yeah, it can be legislated, but it, you know, we're really getting into nuanced care now. Yeah. Um, it's really difficult to legislate quality of life outcomes. So these are, you know, these are going to be dependent on that individual resident's definition of quality of life. Um, and, and so I'm going to go back to it. That's why we need everyone in long-term care to really understand what the palliative care approach to care is. It's that unique care for that person's goals. Definitely. And, and basically, it's definitely a multi-layered approach as well, based on what you're saying, based on your answers that you provided, that there's a lot of things that, we, that need to be looked at. Um, and I hope that, you know, hopefully this conversation will help with that as well. So the, the next question is the palliative care, the palliative approach to care is not taught formally in schools for frontline staff currently. And you've indicated in, in, in the article that this can be done with online uh, courses being offered through Hospice Palliative Care Ontario. Would you agree that this should be taught in schools and have palliative approach to be part of the national standards? Um, there is some education in palliative care in, in most professions actually now. Um, it's not universal and that's the problem. Um, but I do know of some innovation and movement, especially in recent years. You know, in medicine, it depends on the specialty. Yes. Family medicine residents now all receive palliative care education through the curriculum. Okay. Um, and there's a formal rotation available. Uh, medical schools working on the curriculum. Um, and I will give a shout out to the Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians because they're doing a lot of work around medical school curriculums and how do we get it in and what's the right way to provide that education. Nursing, similar to medicine, curriculum are changing, um, but it, a lot of it is dependent on the students' initiatives or interests, and especially like in PSW education or rec therapy education. All the colleges have palliative care in the curriculum. It doesn't mean they're actually delivering it um, yes. because they don't all have enough teachers to deliver it. Yes. So things are changing. You know, we can certainly put it in national standards. I think it's a really good goal to work towards. Um, and, and, you know, things are changing, but not fast enough for those of us who actually work in palliative care or long-term care. Um, I would be thrilled to see national standards. You know, I, I, I can't say that I wouldn't. Everyone who works or volunteers in long-term care should have a palliative care education. So, you know, the HPCO does offer courses to PSWs and volunteers um, in that approach. And they're really good. And we're getting really good feedback. And, yeah. um, you know, those province, those programs have actually been funded by the government. So we okay. know they're kind of pilot projects, right, to see what are we going to do going forward. Um, and the OPCN or the Ontario Palliative Care Network has kind of been given an umbrella around doing that. And one of those yes. four pillars is long-term care. So yes. there are going to be changes. Um, you know, if everyone could understand or recognize the clues that residents and family members give us when they need to talk about dying, um, you know, yeah. if all our focus on our work uh, was on providing quality of life for residents, that would be good. And it can be taught. You know, people say, oh, no, it, you, know, you need to yes. be a compassionate person to be able to do palliative care. Mm, it helps. <laughs> it makes it easier. 
if you have an no. interest and you're already that kind of warm person. But you can teach people the language and you can teach people to be comfortable exactly. with it. It really actually starts in teaching ourselves. How are we going to be yeah. compassionate to ourselves? If we're not compassionate to ourselves, how can we be compassionate to someone else? You know, so administrators, there are now lots of programs that train in compassionate leadership. We have to work together compassionately. I always say, you know, in palliative care and long-term care, we're all one-on-one -on -one pretty good with the patients that we treat, but we're not always compassionate with each other. Um, a couple of years ago, I did some training in Toronto through what's called the, the Serana Institute. It's a program that started through sick kids and they offer mindfulness and compassion training to people who work. At first, it was just in end-of-life care, but it's really expanded further. And when I did that course two years ago, it was um, over nine months and it was weekends, you would go and spend two days. And it really was around a meditation practice or mindfulness practice to develop self-compassion. But the last weeks became, okay, but we work in all these places and how are we going to not have all these work issues, you know, and stay compassionate for other people and work. And um, I've, I've, I'm taking that course again actually. And, and this time I'm taking it because we're going to try to develop that course uh, to be offered in long-term care. Okay. Okay. So, so there's other work outside of even what the HPCO is doing, recognizing that palliative care needs a different education to really that's, be comfortable with that. No, that's, that's really good to know that all of these things are being done and probably just needs to be more highlighted that these are, you know, for offering. So in terms of the quality of life, as you indicated, it's not a checklist. Um, how do we ensure the hours of care there for the staff to do their roles? I know that you had a mention in one of the answers in terms of, yes, we can legislate um, staffing, but what else can be done? Yeah, I mean, that four hours came about years ago. Um, truly, it's, it's not enough. So, you know, if we're going to do resident-centered care, everybody who works in long-term care, um, if, if we have that approach of talking to the resident, sitting down with the resident, um, you know, four hours of PSW and nursing care, yes. Uh, but wouldn't it be great that everybody actually just felt comfortable providing kindness? Yes, you know, you know. definitely. Um, how would that change people's perceptions of what long-term care is? You know, I work in long-term care. I, I hope to never have to live in one. So I understand what... Um, residents and families preconceived notions are when they walk in the door. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've got some couple of bills on the table that um, right. bill three, which is the Compassionate Care Act has really given some good momentum to all this work that's being done in palliative yes. care. Um, and, and bill 13 is looming and that's the one that's going to, um, you know, legislate care hours. Um, this is a, this is the current government's bill, right? So 
That's um, right. It, you know, it, it, it's, it's going to pass. They have a majority, um, but there's actually agreement across all parties for this. So, so we're going to see, you know, we'll certainly see some political debate around the bill, but I think we all um, who work in long-term care hope that that bill's going to get passed to make some real changes. Um, further than that, you know, um, Dr. Aria has talked about it. This, this has become uh, racialized and unpaid or poorly paid work. It's mostly women's work. Um, you know, I keep going back to my early, I had a major in women's studies and talked about women's work in like 90. And like, we're still talking about it. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we talked about racialized work back then too. Like we know who was providing this work, and they need dignity in their work so that they can provide dignity to the people that they're serving. Like it's 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 not rocket science. It really isn't. Um, you know, as a board member for the OLTCC, um, you know, we're working with all these other organizations and we're talking to the government and we've. Um, we've been able to speak to the, the commission that's going on for long-term care. Um, I think the palliative care approach, everybody's talking about it in long-term care. I think we know it's the way we need to go. <sighs> legislation is good. Too much legislation isn't. We need to be really careful what we're going to legislate and what we aren't because we can't just legislate the tick boxes, right? So four hours of direct care, good start. Uh, with long-term care residents complexity today, I'm going to say again, that number is too low. Um, I don't want us ticking boxes. I want it to be human interaction focused. Um, we're still going to do bath time, body care, meal times. You know, they don't have to be done in silence. These are times when we can be checking in with the residents about what their hopes are for that day. We can be focused on what gives them some joy that day, that hour, that minute sometimes. I, I think that's where we need to be. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree and thank you for that. And, and lastly, um, talking to what you just mentioned in terms of with Bill 3 uh, and Bill 13, the Time to Care Act, where it indicates at least a minimum of the four hours of care. However, that has been yet to pass at this particular moment. And if it is not passed, should those four hours of care be added to Bill, Bill 3, the Compassionate Care Act, where all Ontarians have access to palliative care to provide the full framework of care? What are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I, I'm not 100% I'm, I'm not sure how we can change legislation or what kind of amendment would have to be done because that bill's passed, right? Um, so I, I think that um, like in all areas of healthcare change, um, change starts at the grassroots. And whether or not we can amend that act, um, with all the discussions around long-term care this year, I think that residents and family members and, and people who work in the system now have an expectation that that is going to be going forward. So yes, pass it, amend it, do whatever we can, but if not, it doesn't stop us from having a duty to change what we do in long-term care. Yes, thank you. I really do appreciate that. That's great. And 
again, I just want to thank you so much for coming on and to speak to um, these two articles that you wrote and, and just on the topic of palliative care as this is now more um, talked about uh, by everyone. And again, I just want to thank you, Dr. Legere, for your time, for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles. And thank you again. Thank you.